deal or no deal. Racing to negotiate, Democrats scale back their plans for the social safety net. We will have an agreement that we will pass both houses. The latest on what the bill will do and how Democrats will pay for it. I'll speak exclusively with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi next. And it's the economy, stupid. Americans worry about a supply chain backup ahead of the holidays, pain at the pump, and rising inflation. How bad will it get? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen joins me exclusively in moments. Plus, needing a boost. Some Americans rush to get another shot as the gap grows between those who want the vaccine and those who refuse it. In a state where less than 50% are fully vaccinated, what, if anything, will convince them? Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is ahead. Hello, I'm Dick Tapper in Washington, where the State of Our Union is wanting to be a fly on the wall. President Joe Biden is hosting Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in Delaware today as Biden puts increased pressure on his party to deliver a deal to upgrade the nation's social safety net and to take steps to combat climate change before Biden leaves for Europe on Thursday. And Democrats have just seven days until October 31st. That's the date that Speaker Nancy Pelosi set to advance President Biden's agenda. At a CNN town hall this week, President Biden expressed confidence his party would deliver. But while it is now clear the size of the bill, uh, the social policy bill, will be far less than the original $3.5 trillion, it is still not clear what will make it into the final package. Democrats have to make some tough choices about which of their big ticket items to prioritize and how to pay for it, all to meet the demands of two Democratic senators who have been holdouts, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Joining us now, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who is here in studio. Thanks so much for joining us, Madam Speaker. Appreciate it. So how how close are you to a deal on this larger package of of, uh, elder care, daycare, child care, uh, family leave, that stuff, whatever you you want to call the bill, the social safety net bill, we call it. Um, And will President Biden have a deal in hand when he leaves for Europe this week? Well, first, thank you for the opportunity to talk about that this morning. I'm glad that you talked about COVID in your presentation. opening here, because that's how we start all of our meetings. What are we doing to protect the American people to stop the spread of COVID? And I want to commend President Biden for having a completely different approach than his predecessor on this. Uh, We have to correct a lot of what went wrong then, and we're on a good path. And the good news about children being safely able to be vaccinated is something that will help stop the spread. So thank you for focusing on that, because that is... We talk about it every day, it, all day. And so do we in, in yeah. the House Democratic Caucus. Uh, in terms of where we are, uh, I've said already, we've 90% of the bill agreed to and written. We just have some of the last uh, decisions to be made. Uh, it is less than we had uh, was projected to begin with, but it's still bigger than anything we have ever done in, in, in terms of addressing the needs of America's working families. And it is about all that you said in terms of uh, care, the care piece. But it's also about the climate piece, which is a a health issue, a jobs issue, a security issue, and a values issue for us. And we will have something that will help meet the, that will meet the president's goals. I feel very confident about that, even though it will be different than what we originally proposed. By the time he leaves for Europe, do you think you'll have a deal by Thursday or Friday? No, I, I think we'll... I think we're pretty much there now. You think you have a deal now? We're almost there. We just, it's just the language of, of it. But it will, be, it will um, not offend, shall we say, uh, the concern that uh, Senator Manchin had about the CEPP. But nonetheless, 
the point is to reach a goal and the president's goals of reaching the emissions, the pollution and all yeah. the rest. Because so, we were prepared with our select committee headed by Kathy Castor, we had other options. Uh, other uh, ways to pay for it. Uh, no, other ways, to, other ways to reach the goal. And yes, pay for it as well. So I want to get to that in a second, but just as a side issue, because there are a lot of people who are very eager for the bipartisan infrastructure bill yes. to come up and be voted on as well. And progressives have said they're not going to vote for that until there's at least a deal on the larger social safety net bill. You said the House must pass the bipartisan infrastructure plan by October 31st, yes. which is a week from today. Moderates right. are frustrated. Two deadlines have been yeah. mi- missed because of the progressives. Do you, are you going to meet that goal? No, wait, wait a minute. There was no deadline that was missed because of the progressives. Okay. The deadline was missed because they changed from 3.5 to one half that, and we've had to uh, go in. and It's lamb meat lamb. Everything is good in the bill. What do you cut? Okay. So in terms of this date, this date is fraught with meaning because on October 31st is the day that the uh, Highway Trust Fund authorization expires. Right. And if that expires, uh, we have to get billions of dollars someplace uh, to continue that. The best way to do that is to pass the BIF, ha- having nothing to do with all the other, uh, uh, shall we say, deliberations that are going on. Our chair of the committee, Peter DeFazio, who's a master of this, of the, of the infrastructure, transportation infrastructure committee, has, has said we must pass this right. by but, October 31st. But uh, the reason I invoked progressives, I'm not blaming anything on them, but I'm no. just saying they have said, a sizable number of them, enough of them to tank the bill, that they will not vote for the BIF, the Bipartisan right. Infrastructure Plan, unless there is this framework no, agreed right. to. You're so, absolutely right. so are you saying in the next week the framework will be agreed to or there will be a deal on the social safety Let's net bill? Let's call it an agreement. An agreement. There, there will be an agreement on that, and you will also vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Both of those things will happen in the next week. That's the plan. That's the plan. And, and right now we are just, as, as you indicated, uh, the two Senate, uh, Sen- uh, Leader Schumer, Mr. Manchin, Senator Manchin, and the president are having the, the meeting on some of the particulars that need to be finalized. And I'm optimistic that we can do that. Because, again, when one basket was climate, which right. is a jobs bill and a bill for the children for the future, is the health care piece of it, a, a strengthening the Affordable Care Act, expanding Medicaid, and expanding Medicare. So let's provisions. get into it. Let's get into some of these issues because they're important for people. And understand. then the third basket yeah. is we're getting into it just so we have. A, yeah. Is the third bucket is the care. Care. Piece Elder care, child care, child care, family leave, child care and uh, universal pre-K go together. Mm. Elder care. When we say home health care, that's for elder or children. Right. Or uh, siblings who are disabled or something like that. So is family leave going to make it into the final bill? It was four weeks of paid family leave. Is that going to be in the final bill? That's our hope. Yes, that's, well, we're, hope. that's what we're fighting for. So fighting Senator for. Sinema, uh, who is a key Arizona Democrat vote in the Senate, Senator Sinema has said she will not support raising the corporate tax rate, raising the tax on high wage earners. Uh, and President Biden has acknowledged that might mean you can't pay for the rest of the bill using those sources of revenue. Do you have an alternate way? Yeah, we do, because we were ready to pay for 3.5. Right. So we certainly can pay for one point, half of that. And what, are, what is that alternate way? Is it a billionaire's tax? Is it a well, the minimum tax for corporations? Tax is, uh, shall we say, has an appeal, but it doesn't produce that much money. Okay. It's, we, because the bill is not written yet, we hope it will be written today and introduced tomorrow, 
Only then can the Joint Tax Committee evaluate what it brings in. We anticipate $200, $250 billion, but we need closer to $2 trillion. So, where so we have other things. Such as? Well, such as we have enforcement, and that's several hundred billion dollars. We have the overseas harmonization of taxes, and that's a few hundred billion dollars. We have an array. We have an array, and I'm not going to say what they are right here. Corporate minimum tax, so that a, a, a Elizabeth Warren was talking on, on the lead uh, the other day about if a company like Amazon makes hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, and pays zero, this would be the legislation that requires that they pay something. Is, there, is that in there? Well, the president, president during his campaign, had a, a market rate, excuse me, a book rate proposal, and that is being evaluated as well. Uh, as to how much that brings in, but that's another way to tax uh, the, the increase in wealth in corporate America. But mm. the thing is, is that whether we use the increase in the corporate tax rate, increase in the tax on uh, 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 some of the other aspects yeah. of it. Wealth tax, billionaire's tax. Well, no, um, um, just some other aspects, okay. because we probably will have a wealth tax. Yeah. But again, it's only 10% of what we need. We, and we, the other things are more like $800 billion versus $200 billion. But we can use them another time. If they don't go away as a source of revenue to pay for how we go forward. And we want to pay for But you said you probably do. will have a wealth tax. Well, that is, it, it will, it we'll see. We haven't seen the bill yet. Right. And you said also it. that it's being written right now, and you're, going to, and you're going to send it to the... This is a Senate proposal, okay. and they supposedly are writing it today. Tomorrow they would introduce it, and then tax the uh, Joint Tax Committee is the one that says this is how much you get from that. But again, on our side, we have been totally ready with right. alternatives in terms of House and Senate and the White House. We, we have plenty of alternatives. We're ready. So what is your response to progressives who say what the Washington Post editorial board said that Democrats are in danger of breaking the promise to roll back the Trump tax cuts and to fully play, pay for the plan? Well, we're going to fully pay for the plan. You are. We'll probably more than pay for the plan. And uh, one bill does not make a, a, a no, we, look, look might what still the take another crack at getting rid of the We Trump. had the rescue package, $1.9 trillion. We have the, the, the uh, infrastructure bill over a trillion dollars, that's around $3 trillion, and we'll have this at $2 trillion. Nobody has done anything that remarkable. So while it isn't everything that was put out originally, it, does, it takes us down a path where we can continue investments in these. Now, this, this piece, the care piece, I did the climate, health, the care piece is the, is all three of them make it transform, transformative. Yeah. America's working families. It is a big bill. It's and a it, very it big do, bill. It would, do, it would accomplish it, a lot. Even at half, it's a very big bill. So let me ask you, because one of the questions right now is paid family leave. You said that you hope that that's going to be in there, yeah. four weeks of paid family leave. And the expansion of Medicare to enjoy, to include rather, dental, vision, and hearing yeah. coverage. Is that going to be in the bill? Well, that's part of the negotiation. Dental is very expensive. So hearing and, hearing and visual... Uh, and dental, but dental will take a little longer to implement. But that's part of the negotiation right now. So you, but, don't, you don't know what's going to be in the final bill. Well, we'll it sounds like you're is. saying dental might not make it because well, it's it'll so make, expensive. Well, it'll be on a path. It'll be on a path. But what they told us, and I, I, I don't quite understand why, but they, they've, we've been told by uh, people who know about these things that it'll take five, six years in order to implement the dental. Yeah. So 
how do we, uh, how do we, shall we say, fill in the blank there? Bernie has some suggestions about how to do that. That'll be part of the negotiation. Bernie Sanders, today. the independent Bernie, <coughs> from Bernie Vermont. Sanders. Are you, are you frustrated? I mean, you, you talk about how you're almost there except for 10% of the bill. And you also talk about how the House is there. You guys are ready. You're going to pass it. Um, and it's really these two Senate holdouts, Cinema uh, and Manchin. Are you frustrated with them? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm respectful of everybody's point of view. I do not want the Bush tax, excuse me, I don't want the Trump tax cuts perpetuated. So I don't want anybody to think if we don't address those right now that that's, they're off the table. No, we, we will use them for something at some point because you can't use the wealth tax and, and tax the billionaires, which is what we should be doing, and let corporate America off the hook. But corporate America will be paying because of the, of the overseas tax and some of the other provisions are very technical to go into right now. Yeah. We'll know more tomorrow to see what makes the cut. What makes the cut. And then it's worth it, the time to go into it. There's also this issue of the, of the debt ceiling, yeah. right? Well, that's uh, a different issue. That's separate. It's a separate issue. But, but the terms of how you get it through the Congress to the President Biden's desk yeah. may be separate, maybe not. Congress acted to raise the debt ceiling through December 3rd. After that, Republican leader, uh, minority leader Mitch McConnell says, you're on your own. We're not going to provide any votes for Democrats. A default, obviously, would, would be devastating for the American economy, for the, for the world economy. <clears throat> Are you willing to attach raising the debt ceiling to the social safety net package? Uh, or, if not, to use reconciliation, which means only 50 votes, 51 votes needed in the Senate anyway, in order to get this done? That's one path. But we're still hoping to have bipartisanship. Uh, it, it seems that the American people should understand that what we're talking about is largely the Trump debt. Right. Now, we participated in some of it with COVID and the rest, but we didn't participate in giving uh, a tax scam, 83% of the benefits to the top 1% uh, that added $2 trillion to the debt. President, uh, President Biden's part of this debt is about 3%. Right. And, and yet the Republicans, who when President the former president was in office uh, three times. We had to do something about the national debt. Now, look at what is in jeopardy. Even talking about it is not a good idea because, I mean, it, even placing in doubt whether it was right. not a good idea because it can lower the credit rating of our country, as it did when the Republicans did not want to increase it when President Obama was president. Seems yeah. they're okay with it when there's a Republican president, but not a Democrat. Six to seven million jobs could be lost. $15 trillion in household wealth. Consequences that could last for decades. Why not get rid of the debt ceiling? Well, that's what we have a plan to do as well. <clears throat> there are a number of uh, plans to do that, but would the Republicans agree to that before we, we again... Okay. Well, so your mind, is, your mind is open in terms of whether or not you use reconciliation or whether or not yeah. you attach it yeah. to the social Well, we still would rather have bipartisanship, whether it's a Democratic president or a Republican right. president. But you probably won't have it, so you, you'll, you'll consider these options, is all I'm saying. I want yeah. to ask you... And it's very, <clears throat> very, very important. Absolutely. The House voted on Friday to hold former uh, Trump ally Steve Bannon in criminal contempt of Congress for ignoring a subpoena. Do you think people who refuse to comply with congressional subpoenas should be prosecuted by the Justice Department and at the end of the day go to jail? Yes. You do? I do. I do. Well, first of all, this, you know, people say, well, this hasn't happened before. We haven't had an insurrection incited by the President of the United States and one of his toadies uh, having knowledge of 
advanced knowledge of that happening. Uh, so, in fact, it's important for a number of reasons. It's important for us to find the truth about what happened on January 6th, an assault on our Constitution, our Congress, and our Capitol. But it's also important to, in terms of the separation of power and the uh, checks and balances of the, of the Constitution, which is the genius of the Constitution, Absolutely. for this uh, to happen in this way. So you're willing, if the, well, if the committee decides to, to subpoena Trump, you're willing to have that happen too? I'm not. They have everything on the table. I don't get involved okay. in the decisions of the committee. But when you say if he should uh, do this and go to jail, well, he'll be tried and see what his, court. what his... Yeah, what court here. I want you to take a listen to a key moment um, in which uh, President Biden was talking about uh, voting rights in the CNN town hall with Anderson Cooper the other night. Take a listen. When it comes to voting rights, just so I'm clear, though, you would entertain the notion of doing away with the filibuster on that one issue. Is that correct? And maybe more. So that is President Biden saying that he is willing to entertain the notion of getting rid of the filibuster for Voting Rights Act uh, and maybe for other things as well. Do you agree with him uh, on that one issue that at the end of the day, having some sort of voting rights bill is more important than preserving the filibuster, at least for that one vote? The most important vote right now in the Congress of the United States is the vote to respect the sanctity of the vote, the fundamental basis of our democracy. So if there were one vote that the filibuster could enable to go forward, that would be the vote. And it enables so much more because we're talking about stopping the suppression of the vote and the nullification of the elections. We're talking about redistricting in a way uh, that is fairer and may not benefit Democrats, but it might open up some of these Republican seats. It talks about stopping the big, dark, crushing special interest money and empowers the grassroots. This is, and then, in addition to that, the Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. John Lewis wrote the first 300 pages of the, yeah. the first bill. Uh, Mr. Manchin has weighed in. The compromise that they voted on last week is perfectly good, and, uh, but he didn't get any Republican votes. So it's but, worth it to you. To- well, no, it's, it's fundamental to our democracy. Right. This is fundamental. Now, mind you, just to remind, when... Uh, What's-his-name was president and the Donald Trump. Republicans were uh, in power. Mitch McConnell pulled back the filibuster to enable, with simple majorities, three justices to go to the Supreme Court for life. You would think that they could pull it back for the American people to have the, uh, the, uh, the vote in a way that... So you're, on bo- you're on board with that, is, is the only thing. Before- I'm, I'm not on board. It's the most important vote. It's about You're leading the way. You're not just on board. Quickly, I do want to ask about your own future in Congress. Are you going to run for re-election? Oh, you think I'm going to make an announcement right here and now? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? I don't have to be on lighting. many more times than that. You're going to run for re-election, though, yes? Why would I tell you that now? Well, it's not just me. It's I the American always. people. It's the world. This is an international show. <laughs> well, probably I would have that conversation with my family first, if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, best of luck with the legislation. Thank you. I know it's Thank a, it's you. a heavy lift. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. High gas prices and a backed-up supply chain just before the holidays. What is the Biden administration doing to fix it? And when? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will join me exclusively next. Plus, millions more Americans now eligible for boosters for COVID is the divide between the vaccinated and the anti-vaccine crowd widening. Stay with us.
Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. COVID cases and deaths are on the decline, but it is clear that the economic effects of the pandemic are going to play out for months, even years. And as Americans look ahead to the holiday season, they are currently worried about rising inflation, driving up the cost of many goods, a backed up supply chain delaying their orders and painfully high prices at the gas pump. Joining us now to discuss Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Secretary Yellen, good to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, We have a lot to get to, but first, you just heard uh, Speaker Pelosi. She floated some new ways to pay for this bill, such as a wealth tax, because it does appear that the plans to raise the corporate tax rate and raising the tax rate for, for top wage earners are out. With those off the table, can you still guarantee that this bill is going to be paid for? Um, As the speaker noted, we have a variety of different ways um, to raise revenue, and all in all, um, it it should be relatively straightforward to raise the revenue necessary to pay for this bill. Um, The final package, exactly what's in and out, uh, hasn't been decided that's being negotiated now. Do you think that a wealth tax will be part of it, and can you explain what that would look like? Well, um, I think what's under consideration is a proposal that uh, Senator Wyden and the Senate Finance Committee have been looking at that would um, impose um, a tax on unrealized capital gains um, on liquid assets held by extremely wealthy individuals, billionaires. Um, I wouldn't call that a wealth tax, but um, it would help get at uh, capital gains, which um, are an extraordinarily large part of the incomes of the wealthiest individuals. And uh, right now, uh, escape taxation uh, until they're realized and often they're unrealized and at death uh, benefit from a so-called step-up of basis. So it's not a wealth tax, but um, a tax on unrealized capital gains of exceptionally wealthy individuals. The Biden administration is trying to reach this deal to spend about another $2 trillion. That makes a total of an extraordinary $5 trillion in spending this year. Inflation, of course, is growing at its fastest pace in 30 years. If the American economy is already overheating, is spending even more money potentially pouring gas on the inflation fire? Well, the additional spending in the infrastructure package and in the Build Back Better package, um, both of those are spending over 10 years, not in a single year. Uh, The rescue package uh, did involve substantial spending this year. And um, let's remember that uh, a benefit of that package is that unemployment is declined to 4.8%, that Americans tell us they feel confident they can find jobs. Now, um, the size of the labor force is uh, declined. It's not... uh, move back to pre-pandemic levels, in part because of uh, COVID, because of health concerns, because of childcare uh, concerns, school concerns. Um, And so many uh, firms are experiencing a shortage of labor. Mm -hmm. Um, The COVID shock to the economy uh, has caused disruptions that we'll be working through over the next year. And of course, Americans haven't seen 
um, inflation like we've experienced recently in a long time. Yeah. But um, as we get back to normal, um, expect that to uh, end. And already on a monthly basis, uh, the inflation numbers are way down below their peaks. So, you know, the, the, the COVID crisis markedly diminished spending on services and caused a reallocation of spending toward goods. And the supply of goods uh, to Americans has increased substantially, but there's still pressure there. And there are uh, shutdowns and COVID impacts in Asia where we import many goods from. And so we're experiencing a lot of supply bottlenecks. Um, There's a shortage of semiconductors, and that's pushed up the prices of used cars and caused a reduction in production of new cars. And this is temporary pains that result from um, a COVID economy right. and so, getting beyond it. So, let me, so let, me, let me ask you about that, because this rising inflation is hitting Americans while it's hard, impacting everything from gas prices to groceries. When do you expect the in- inflation to get back to the you know, 2% range, which is considered normal? 2022, 2023, wh- when? Well, I expect that to happen next year. Um, monthly rates of inflation have already fallen substantially from the very high rates that we saw in the spring and early summer. Um, on a 12-month basis, the inflation rate um, will remain high Uh, into next year because of what's already happened. But uh, I expect improvement uh, by the end of, by the middle to end of next year, second, second half of next year. Second half of 2022. Former President Obama's Treasury Secretary Larry Summers has been sounding alarm bells for months about rising prices. Take a listen to his response to what he calls very disturbing inflation numbers out last week. Now we see inflation becoming more widespread in a wider range of products spreading to uh, the housing and uh, labor markets. Uh, I've been alarmed for a long time, and I'm more alarmed now. More alarmed now. And Summers added this warning, quote, we're in more danger than we've been during my career of losing control of inflation in the U.S. Is he wrong? I think he's wrong. I don't think we're about to lose control of inflation. I agree, of course, we are going through a period of inflation that's higher than Americans have seen in a long time. And it's something that's obviously a concern and worrying them, but we haven't lost control. Mm -hmm. And as we make further progress on the pandemic, I expect these bottlenecks to um, subside. Americans will return to the labor force as conditions improve. And uh, remember, the spending that we did that partially has caused uh, this high demand for goods, it's been very important in making sure that the pandemic hasn't had a scarring effect on American workers. It's given them enough income and support to get through this while still being able to put food on their tables and keep roofs over their heads. And when you don't hear people talking about, I'm worried about being able to get a job, remember that's a very good impact that the rescue packages had. 
And what we're talking about with infrastructure and Build Back Better, the, this is a relatively small amount of spending over a decade, and we need this spending right. to make our economy productive, um, to make sure that families have the support to take care of their children and to work, so, and it will boost labor force participation. So, Secretary Yellen, you, you referred to this earlier, but I want to ask you, there's this record-breaking 4.3 million Americans who left their jobs just in August. It's a pandemic phenomenon. Some are now calling the Great Resignation. Uh, this comes as almost 11 million jobs are, are currently open and waiting to be filled. What's going on here? Why are Americans not taking these jobs? And, and what are you and the White House doing to get people back to work? Well, right now we have a very tight labor market. And um, when the labor market is tight and Americans feel good about their ability to get another job, um, they're more likely to quit a job. Um, they're getting outside job offers and taking them, and that shows up in those statistics. So we have a good, tight labor market. Firms are obviously having trouble hiring workers. But labor supply is depressed by the pandemic. That's because of health concerns, because of child care. Um, and uh, as, as we get beyond the pandemic, uh, I expect labor supply to increase. Um, and I, it's, it's good, I think, to see um, wages begin to rise, especially um, for those, those Americans who had the most insecure jobs mm -hmm. and the lowest wages. And to see some improvement there is something that we should be pleased with. You projected that the U.S. is going to run out of money to pay its bills on December 3rd unless Congress acts to once again raise the debt ceiling. Um, Senator Mitch McConnell says Democrats are going to have to do it alone. Um, and so we just talked to Speaker Pelosi about whether or not they're going to do it with reconciliation. Um, what, how concerned are you that uh, ultimately a default might actually happen this time? Well, I consider it utterly essential that the debt ceiling be raised. It's simply inconceivable that America should prove itself unwilling to pay the bills it's already incurred. And let's be clear, the debt ceiling is not about future spending or tax policy on which members of Congress may disagree. It is about paying the bills that result from past decisions of Congress about spending and taxation. It would be utterly catastrophic, something that has not ever happened in the history of America. Um, our assets, our treasuries are regarded as the safest assets on the planet because America can be counted on, always has, to pay its bills. I personally believe this is a responsibility that Republicans and Democrats uh, should share, yeah. uh, that it's something that both parties can, should do. Uh, together, it's a housekeeping matter, uh, doing what's necessary to pay our bills. I have confidence it will get done, but I will leave it to the speaker and um, to Leader Schumer to figure out what the best way is forward on that. Uh, lastly, Madam Secretary, I asked Senator Elizabeth Warren a few days ago uh, about why she opposes renominating Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Uh, she calls him a dangerous man. Take a listen.
if he reappoints Powell, will, will you fight it? Will you filibuster it? Will you stop it? I will oppose it, and I'll use the tools I've got. I don't want to make another five-year bet on someone whose entire attitude is that he is not going to work to rein in the giant financial institutions. Bloomberg reports that you privately support renominating Fed Chair Jerome Powell for another term. Is that true? Do you support the renomination of Jerome Powell? Well, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the advice that I'm giving to the president. It's up to him to decide what's what's best. But I would I would say that um, during his term um, and during my term and Bernanke's term, um, regulation of financial institutions has been markedly strengthened. It's important to note that when the pandemic struck, although um, there were huge stresses in financial markets, that the core of our financial system did very well because of the improvements in capital, liquidity, risk management, stress testing, and those improvements have stayed in place during the Powell regime. All right, Secretary Janet Yellen, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Governors may have some power to help ease supply chain issues. I'll ask one governor what can be done on the state level next, plus a horrible tragedy on a film set in New Mexico this week. And what happened next? Well, that was also pretty awful. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. Some Americans are now getting another COVID shot this weekend after the CDC approved boosters for those who got the Moderna vaccine, as well as everybody who received the Johnson and Johnson vaccine at least two months ago. But as the pace of boosters rise and the federal government prepares for the possibility the vaccines for five to 11 year olds will be approved in the coming weeks, some states are still struggling to get their citizens vaccinated at all. Joining us now to discuss Arkansas Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson. Governor Hutchinson, we'll get to the pandemic in a sec, but first, I just want to get your reaction. You heard Speaker Pelosi lay out her plans for the legislation coming the way. Secretary Yellen, Treasury Secretary, talking about inflation. You're a governor in the middle of the country. What's your reaction? Well, the greatest concern Americans have right now is the rising cost of fuel, gasoline, uh, and groceries. And uh, whenever you hear uh, Speaker Pelosi talk about the trillion dollar package. She, it hasn't been written. It can't be explained. You did a great job asking her questions about it, but it was as clear as mud. And what that tells the American people is we've got inflationary pressures that impact them. It's a cruelest tax. And now all we see is more government spending, a trillion dollar plan that's out there, multi-trillion dollars, and it can't be explained. So it's really worrisome as a governor to hear uh, what's planned. We do need the bipartisan infrastructure bill. It's critical for roads, it's for broadband, it's for water infrastructure. But this social engineering uh, plan that they have, this trillions of dollars, is simply going to add to inflationary pressures. Mm -hmm. It's already costing the average American a great deal. Let's turn to COVID if we can, because only 47% of your state, Arkansas, is fully vaccinated against COVID-19. It places Arkansas in the bottom 10 in the country for vaccinations. Now, you're vaccinated, and you have been very clearly encouraging Arkansans to get vaccinated for months. Why are so many Arkansans still refusing? 
Well, first of all, we are making progress, and those that have been uh, vaccinated are now lining up to get their booster shots. So we do see it as our way out. The resistance is hard uh, in some areas, and part of it is simply because of the controversy, because of the mandates. It it uh, deepens the resistance, and so that's something we have to overcome. But I don't see that. Uh, controversy going away anytime soon with OSHA issuing mandates for uh, businesses uh, to require vaccination of employees. That's going to intensify uh, the controversy. We can make progress step by step in terms of increasing vaccination, but the side circus in terms of that controversy, there'll be lawsuits filed. So that's going to continue for some time. We're going to continue to push for uh, vaccine adoption. Whenever mm-hmm. you see what's happened in the UK with an increase in cases, we know that COVID can throw us more curves coming down the road. We want to be prepared with increased vaccination. So last week, you admitted that businesses imposing their own vaccine, vaccine mandates are effective in getting vaccine rates up. You also said you're, quote, a defender of the employer's right to provide a healthy workplace, unquote, if they decide to impose those. Now, I understand you are not comfortable with the government, whether state or federal, imposing mandates on businesses. But wouldn't you be saving lives if you imposed a vaccine mandate on state employees who ultimately work for you? Well, it would, it would probably increase vaccination rates, uh, but it also would increase uh, the resistance of some. Some would lose their job, it would hurt their families, and uh, it would, in the broader population, also uh, create that controversy and resistance. So it's a balance there, and that's why private businesses should have the opportunity, The if they want to require a vaccination in their sensitive workplace, they ought to be able to do that. But government doesn't need to tell them to do that. I'm for reducing mandates across the board Uh, in regard to the vaccinations. People will make the right decision over time when they get the right information. And so, sure, uh, Tyson's uh, have required vaccination. Their rate goes up. Others uh, are urging it to happen in their workplace. It goes up there as well. And so I think it's a balance, but what works in Arkansas is not the mandate side of it, but it's the education side. Uh, and businesses having the prerogative to make their own decision without the government telling them what to do. Arkansas requires children entering schools to be vaccinated for diphtheria, tetanus, uh, pertussis, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis B, hepatitis A, chickenpox. Once it is fully approved by the FDA, would it save lives if you added the COVID vaccine to this list for mandatory vaccines for children? Well, let's uh, look at that more deeply. First of all, uh, those are state-by-state vaccine requirements. And so the federal government has never mandated what happens in the states. No, I'm asking you. state-by-state decisions. Yeah, I'm I'm just talking about what what Arkansas mandates, and these these are Arkansas mandates. Absolutely. And so there may be a time in the future that you would want to mandate that in the schools, but that time is not now. Uh, We need to have more experience with that. Uh, We need to have more public acceptance of it, uh, of the vaccine. And so it could happen down the road. It also depends upon the severity of the uh, COVID outbreak and whether the cases skyrocket again or not. Right now, they're at a a very low level in Arkansas. And so 
uh, it can happen, it may happen, but now's not the right time to do that. We need to know more information and to be able to build public confidence to a greater dis- uh, point, but it is a state decision. Uh, you've said, quote, relitigating 2020 is a recipe for disaster in 2022. Um, as President Trump is still out there pushing the big lie, attacking your fellow Republicans for sticking to the facts, uh, going after individual lawmakers who, you know, maintained the rule of law in the 2020 election, like Secretary Raffensperger uh, in Georgia, for example. How worried are you about the state of the Republican Party as we approach the midterms next year? I'm actually very optimistic about uh, the Republican Party because, first of all, you look at our competition and the Democratic Party is divided. Uh, They have uh, their extremes that uh, they're concerned about. Secondly, when we're talking about uh, keeping the line on taxes and government spending uh, and reducing inflation, that's where America is right now. And then we've got great candidates. Uh, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia is doing a great job there, has a great potential to win uh, that Uh, race uh, this year. Uh, And so that's an example of what we need to do in looking at the future, providing solutions for America versus uh, the past in 2020. Let's let's move on. Well, uh, the one thing I'd say is about that is Glenn Youngkin um, has not fully embraced Donald Trump the way uh, that I think he would like to be embraced and the way we've seen other people do it. Do you think that's one of the reasons why this race is competitive? Well, I think uh, Glenn has uh, balanced and handled it very well, talking about uh, the future. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, he hasn't depended, his race has not depended upon Donald Trump, nor should it. All right, Governor Asa Hutchinson, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. This week on the set of a film in New Mexico, actor Alec Baldwin fired a prop gun that killed his cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, and wounded the director, Joel Souza, a horrific and tragic incident. We will ultimately learn what went so wrong, and accountability, of course, is essential. But before we can even get to that, there is the tragedy of this moment. Helena Hutchins was 42, from Ukraine, a rising star in her field, the wife of Matthew Hutchins, the mother of a boy, Andres Hutchins. Heartbreaking for normal people. But there's something about our politics right now that is driving people away from our shared humanity. Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado apparently spent some time and did some digging and found an Alec Baldwin tweet from 2014 about the hands up, don't shoot movement. Baldwin is, of course, not only a progressive, but very aggressive and outspoken about liberal issues, including gun control and the Colorado Congresswoman thought it was funny to exploit hands up, don't shoot to make a joke at the expense of Baldwin, but more importantly, really, to make a joke at the expense of Helena Hutchins and her husband, Matthew, and her son, Andrews. More disappointing, perhaps, was a tweet from J.D. Vance, a former Marine, Yale law grad, author of Hillbilly Elegy. Vance was even for a time a CNN contributor hired because of his perceived insight and empathy. Vance is a conservative for whom a lot of folks once had great hope would rise to become a real leader. But he's running in a Senate Republican primary in Ohio that seems to have become the fear factor of American politics. 
with contestants positioned against one another as to who can performatively appeal best to the lowest common denominator. Vance, joking, asked for Twitter to remove its ban on Donald Trump because, quote, we need Alec Baldwin tweets. In other words, Vance appears to be saying, we need to see Donald Trump attack Alec Baldwin hours after this tragedy, at this moment, to exploit this horror in which an innocent woman, mother, wife, artist, was killed. Vance seems to want Trump to attack and mock for a global audience, Alec Baldwin, for killing a woman in what almost certainly was a tragic accident, regardless of the pain of Matthew Hutchins or Andros Hutchins. And however this impacts Baldwin, and really, I mean, how might such an incident impact you? And he did this, J.D. Vance. He did this. Why? Presumably because he thinks it will help him win supporters. He did it to win votes. In other words, the cruelty is a feature of his candidacy, not a bug. Vance is seemingly following the playbook of Donald Trump, whose response to the death of Secretary Colin Powell a few days ago was to issue a statement attacking Powell following similar attacks that he made against the late John McCain and the late John Dingell after they had died. Violations of basic decency, ones we see repeatedly with the Republican Party's embrace of individuals such as Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia, her reaction in 2018 to a deadly fire in the Western United States was to go on Facebook and speculate that wealthy Jewish Americans might be using lasers to cause the fires to make money somehow. A deranged anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Nuts. One that was brought up by Congresswoman Liz Cheney when Marjorie Taylor Greene started berating Cheney on the House floor this week. Now, Cheney has been ostracized by her party for standing against Trump lies and for wanting to get to the bottom of the deadly insurrection on January 6th. Green, well, she was described by one Democratic congressman as seeming rather gleeful on that day, January 6th, though Green's staff denies it. Either way, ask yourself, which of these congresswomen is more likely to be given a speaking slot at the 2024 Republican convention? A longtime Republican official texted me after J.D. Vance's tweet, quote, being a horrible person, he wrote, is now actually a job requirement in this party, unquote. I hope to God that that Republican official is wrong. Thanks for spending your Sunday morning with us for Reed Zakaria GPS is next. 